You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello again. I'm Marvin O'Connell, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame, and I'm enjoying the privilege of talking to you about certain aspects of the history of the Catholic Church, of Catholicism, and particularly the most remote beginnings of our faith as a creed, as a moral commitment, and as an institution. That is to say, back to the very early centuries of the Christian era. Our last session concluded with a discussion of the famous persecution of the Christians carried on by the Emperor Nero. And I suggested to you at that time that uh, this particular outbreak of violence was almost an anomaly, almost uh, an exception. That is to say, there were these specific reason that the government moved against not the Christians generally across the Roman world, but only those who were living in the city of Rome on the grounds that they were the scapegoats for the terrible fire during which Nero fiddled. But 30 years later, about the time of Pope St. Clement I, toward the end of the first century, the Roman government moved universally against the Christians. There were 10 separate Roman persecutions, official acts by the Roman government, outlawing Christianity and imposing upon practicing Christians uh, the death penalty. And not only that, but some of the most hideous cruelties uh, that have ever been recorded. The first of these persecutions was in many ways an odd phenomenon for this reason. The emperors who oversaw it, who promulgated it, and who carried it out, emperors from roughly the time of Domitian to the time of Marcus Aurelius, roughly the first 50 years of the second century, were men who prided themselves upon their own legal probity and who would have considered it beneath them to unleash the sort of savage pogroms which became unhappily common later. This is not to say that this long persecution, even though it was not marked with the most uh, horrific and hideous of activities which came later, was nevertheless a time of great trial and trouble to the early Christians. Let me repeat. These emperors and their functionaries, their bureaucrats, considered themselves to be, in the last analysis, judges, legal persons. And they wanted to proceed in a way which was in accord with legal precedent. And so they began, and this is now we go back to, say, around the time that St. Clement was writing that famous letter to the Corinthian Christians, they began by an examination of the various areas in which Christians were numerous. Uh, 
This was initiated by complaints from livestock dealers. Karl Marx used to say that every human act has an economic cause. Well, there was some, obviously there's some truth in that, and there was some truth in it as it applied to this particular situation. The livestock dealers were complaining to the government because their trade had fallen off so sharply due to the fact that conversions to Christianity had emptied the pagan temples. This was particularly true in the eastern Greek-speaking part of the empire. And as the pagan temples closed, so did the animal sacrifices, which composed the greatest part of the worship of the pagans. This being the case, the government felt it necessary to look into the matter. And various governors were instructed to send back reports to Rome, to the central administration, as to what precisely was going on. One of these reports comes from a very famous literary figure, a man called Pliny who was a governor in what is now Western Turkey and also a Roman poet of some fame. And Pliny wrote back in his report, which has come down to us, about the year 100, 105, wrote back and described the Christian practices. And he, what he described was almost exactly what St. Justin had described in a passage that I read to you the other time we met. The Christians are respectable, they're law-abiding. They do withdraw, particularly on the first day of the week, and go off by themselves, and they partake in this strange meal, is the way Pliny expressed it. Pliny said, what do you want me to do? And so the policy was enunciated. And the policy that came from the central administration was this. Anybody who is denounced as a Christian must be arrested by the police. The denunciation must not be anonymous. The person who is denouncing his neighbor or his spouse or whatever must come forward and make his name known. Once the denunciation is made, then the Christian is to be brought to the tribunal. And there the Christian is offered the choice of offering sacrifice to the pagan gods or death by the most horrible means. This was the policy then that was followed for about 50 years. It was pernicious from two points of view, at least so it seems to me. One is that it encouraged pagans to denounce their Christian neighbors for reasons that probably had nothing to do with religion, but as a means of personal revenge or a business advantage or something of that sort. It was a kind of thing that made neighbors suspicious of one another and hostile toward one another. And pernicious for a second reason in that if you admitted that you were a Christian and then you offered the sacrifices mandated by the police, what that amounts to is that you are guilty of a crime but you are freed and unpunished for it if you denounce it which is a very problematical way in which to treat the law. So you can see something like this administered sometimes very strictly, sometimes very loosely, and nevertheless made the lives of the Christians not only very, very harsh in many instances, an invitation for many Christians to apostatize from their faith, and we must not be 
overly romantic about this, it is certainly the case that many, many Christians did for fear of their lives. I wonder what I would do if I were faced with, with that choice. It made life, as I say, very uncertain and harsh and sometimes led to apostasy. But it was the legal framework within which the government treated the Christian religion till about the year 150. Which allows me to go off on a slight tangent, speaking of apostasy. There are a lot of kind of pious legends that have survived, which are not part of Christian tradition, which speak of the Christians being persecuted unremittingly for more than 200 years. This is simply not the case. If this had been the case, humanly speaking, the Christian religion would have been wiped out. I spoke of these first 50 years, then the next nine persecutions, without exception, would last for a period of three or four, or at the most eight years, and then subside. And so there were, there were long periods in which the Christians were left alone. And the other impression wedded to a particular expression, the Church of the Catacombs, we often hear that expression used, meaning that during these times of persecution, the Christians hid in the Roman underground burial areas, the catacombs, and in similar burial grounds in other large cities. There is no doubt that the Christians did indeed on occasion take flight and hide in these areas. We know that because of the remains that are still there to be seen in the catacombs, say, of St. Cecilia or St. Clement in Rome. We see the frescoes and the memorial tombs and the fish drawn on the wall, ichthos, is the Greek word for fish, and if you take the Greek letters of that word, you can spell out Jesus Christ. But it would be wrong to think that the Christians did not live ordinary lives a good part of the time. Still, there was always hanging over their heads this terrible possibility during the 50 years, and then in the last nine persecutions, when the government sent squads of soldiers and policemen out into the areas where the Christians were living and rounded them up the way the Nazis rounded up the Jews in the wickedness of the Holocaust. There is no doubt, even though we're talking about an era somewhat careless of statistics, there is no doubt that many millions suffered in the course of this series of persecutions. Now to understand how this could have happened in what was, humanly speaking, a relatively civilized regime like the Roman Empire, we have to take a look at the pagan religions which the Christians were replacing. The pagan religions of the ancient world were all what we call nature religions. They were all responses, reactions to the powers of nature which, it seemed, to a pre-scientific age, were genuinely hostile to human beings. The sun could provide enough light for one to carry on his activities, but it could also dry up the rain and cause drought. Infectious disease was always as much a danger as was famine. One could be drowned in the sea or killed by the wind, or overwhelmed by the storms. There was always something in the natural world which seemed to be geared toward the destruction of the human being. It is out of that fear and in hopes of somehow 
eluding the terrible consequences of a hostile and all-powerful nature that the pagan religions developed. And you can tell that by the way in which they were practiced. The pagan religions had no doctrine. They each had a mythology, the mythology of, say, of Mount Olympus for the Greeks, where the gods and goddesses flew around and did certain things. They had these stories, but the stories were just stories. The ancient pagan religions had no moral code. One didn't look to one's religion in order to find out what was ethically acceptable, what was right and what was wrong. The only aspect of religion which was important to the ancient pagan cults was ritual, was acts of worship. And those acts of worship, those rituals, those cults, those sacrifices of livestock, the deprival of which was so deleterious to the economic interests of the livestock dealers, was the only really religious activity that went on in the pagan religions. If you look at the conventional description of what a religion is, or how you describe its various parts, you say it is composed of doctrine, of a moral code, and of a ritual. That's true of Islam, that's true of Buddhism, but it was not true of the pagan cults. Now, as I say, they had their mythologies, they had their stories, but these stories were not at all analogous to the doctrines the supernatural doctrines which the Jews and the Christians accepted. Let me try an outlandish example. Imagine, if you will, a Greek, a Roman, and a, an Egyptian having a drink together in some neutral place. And the Roman says to the Greek, after he's had a couple of drinks and is kind of opening up, he says, I'm worried about my daughter because She's just 17 now and very nubile, and all the young men are ogling her, and I'm, I'm just afraid that somebody's going to grab her or do her sexual damage to her or harass her in some fashion. Uh, so I guess what I'll have to do, says the Greek, is to offer sacrifice to Aphrodite. The Roman says, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, uh, Starvos. You don't want to do that. You want to offer a sacrifice to Venus. No, 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 says Amir, the Egyptian. No, you both got it wrong. In this situation, and believe me, fellas, I've been down this road. I got five daughters. Believe me, you, what you want to do is offer a chicken to Ishtar. In each instance, as they drank a little bit more and talked a little bit more, they discovered that they were really talking about the same thing. They were talking about sexual power. They were talking about fertility. They were talking about the dangers that could come from unbridled sexual desire being directed against one of their daughters. They had different names. Aphrodite for the Greek, Venus for the Roman, Ishtar for the Egyptian, but they were talking about the same reality. The reason I mention this is that when the Romans extended their power gradually, but, but definitively, long before the time of Christ, across the whole Mediterranean area, what they found were religions which had different mythologies from their own, different stories, but the stories didn't matter. There was no moral code. What they did find was that although the stories were different and the names were different, the phenomena that were being 
worship were the same. Worship for what reason? Worship to hold off some evil. That's all that religion was about, to keep the gods, meaning the powers of nature, in my example, the sexual appetite, to keep those in check, to keep them from hurting either me or my loved ones. Therefore, the Romans, who imposed their hegemony over this whole area, their political and military hegemony, their economic and social structures, were perfectly tolerant of all the religions they found because all the religions they found were just like their own. The one exception was the Jews. The Jews preached a God, a Yahweh God, who transcended the powers of nature, who was the cause of natural phenomena. The important thing to remember is that the Jews didn't differ from the pagans because the Jews worshiped one God and the pagans worshiped many gods. The important difference was the Jews worshiped a deity who transcended the powers of nature. Well, the pagans worshiped a deity who, or deities, I should say, plural, who represented the powers of nature. The Jews had a moral code which attached to the sanction of their God, the Ten Commandments and all that flowed from that. And then, of course, they too had their ritual, the ritual which began with the Mosaic Ark of the Covenant and the priesthood of Aaron. But the Jews had all three parts of legitimate religion, the pagans only one. Well, then, you might say, the Romans probably came in there and said, what we're going to have to do is destroy this bunch of eccentrics. Not at all. The Romans took one look at the situation, very shrewd and very practical people, and said, these people are no problem. They are ethnically and racially distinct, and more important than that, they do not proselytize. They don't go around looking for converts. If you want to join the Jewish faith, you've got to take all the steps yourself. They aren't out trying to interest other people in becoming Jews, being circumcised and abiding by all the dietary laws and all the rest of it. So long as that was the case, the Roman government was perfectly happy to leave the Jews alone, religiously, as long as they abided by the presence of the Roman occupation. The Christians, however, were very different. The Christians, at first, were simply considered a kind of Jew, which made sense given the, the roots and the ethnic character of the early Christians. But it became clear very soon that the Christian faith was not restricted to any particular racial group, and this was the, the really crucial point, that the Christians were anxious to make converts, to bring others into their fold, to preach the gospel to all nations. And so the Romans saw rising before them a system, an organization, which was as universal as the empire itself, and therefore could very much be a rival to the Roman system. So the rejection of the pagan gods by the Christians came to be a crime because their rejection represented an invitation to others to join this ever-growing organization. And so the persecutions began. 
As I say, they began under that rather ambiguous legal arrangement from 100 to 150. But after that, periodically, there broke out these terrible pogroms, named always for the emperor. The persecution of Decius, for example, the persecution of Valerian, and the other names that one hears in counting these terrible events. One more generalization. I think it's important to be sure that we don't kid ourselves about the nature of those pagan religions as though they somehow offered the same kind of humanistic values uh, that the great religions, Islam, Catholicism, Protestantism, offer. There was in the ancient pagan world a vein of cruelty and hardness of heart and indifference to pain, the pain of others. Uh, that is almost impossible for us to understand. Granted, we live in a most bloodthirsty century uh, with terrible things that have gone on. And yet, the very fact that we call them terrible is an indication of the difference which 2,000 years of Christianity, plus, in all fairness one must say this, plus several hundred years of agnostic, humanistic, enlightened attitudes toward the sanctity of human life and the need for mercy and compassion as well as justice. The saying was, however, true. The blood of martyrs was the seed of Christians. The numbers of the Christians grew remorselessly despite the persecutions. Oh, certainly, there were fallbacks during the persecutions, but then, like a rising tide, the numbers of Christians grew. The attractiveness of the doctrines, the good example of our Christian ancestors, brought ever more and more and more people into the Christian church. The last persecution and the worst in terms of bloodthirstiness and cruelty if not in longevity, was that of Diocletian, which lasted from 303 to 311. There we find some of the most awful of the tortures being, uh, being exacted. Women with their breasts cut off, people taken and two sapling trees being bent over in this fashion, the legs of a Christian being tied to each sapling, and then the rope holding the saplings together, cut and then breaking apart the body. Awful stuff, awful stuff. But by 311, the world was also beginning to change in other ways. There arose on the scene a man called Constantine. He was the son of a, of a soldier and was himself a soldier, born in Britain one who, as he looked around the Roman world, could see that there were growing all over the place independent warlords of whom he made one himself. There grew up, just as the persecution was ending, a civil war, the details of which need not detain us. But as Constantine, with his army, was approaching another warlord, they met at a place called the Milvian Bridge in the year 312. And there, the soldiers of Constantine, on the night before the battle, had crosses emblazoned upon their shields. 
And when they came out in battle formation the next morning, they defeated their enemy. And from that time onward, the whole scene changed for the Christians and indeed for the Roman Empire. There are many, many, I guess legends is the word I'll use, although I'll qualify that in a moment. There are many legends that arise about the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and the placing of the sign of the cross upon the shields of Constantine's soldiers. Much later, Constantine said that the night before the battle he had a vision and he saw up in the sky an angel or some kind of ethereal being and in its hand was a cross, the symbol of Christianity, the symbol of Jesus' suffering and resurrection. And emblazoned beneath it were these words, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. And so taking this seriously, well, who wouldn't if you had a vision like that? Constantine had the symbol placed upon the shields of his soldiers. They won the battle the next day. A few months later, in the year 313, Constantine entered the northern Italian city of Milan and he issued an edict, the Edict of Milan, which offered religious toleration to all members of citizens, inhabitants of the empire. And thus the persecutions were formally stopped. A year or so after that, Constantine himself became a Christian. And so the whole panoply of horror and pain and deprivation was removed. Let me tell you a little anecdote about the legend, about the sign in the sky. I was teaching this stuff many, many more years ago than I care to remember to a group of young novices, Benedictine nuns. And I went through the sort of academic historical approach to this which goes something like this. Constantine was a terrible brute. Uh, he may have been the first Christian emperor, but he was also a horrible man. Murdered his first wife, murdered two of his children. He did become a Christian in the years after the Edict of Milan, but when he had Christianity explained to him, and it was that all sins were forgiven when you're baptized, he decided the way to handle that was to keep a priest around him at all times and not to be baptized until he was on his deathbed. So then he could kill and scheme and lie and commit fornication and anything else he wanted to do. So he wasn't a very nice man. The other part of the problem was that this account of seeing the vision was told by Constantine only much later and only by him. Well, the historian, as we've talked about in our earlier discussions, is very fussy about sources. And if this man is telling a self-serving story that his victory at the Milvian Bridge was something that God himself had ordained, one has to deal with that rather, rather warily. So anyway, I explained all this in my highly professional way to these young sisters. And in the exam that I gave them at the end of the term, the best student in the class, Sister Mary Ann, let's call her, answered this question. I asked the question, is it historically credible that Constantine was visited by some supernatural intervention? Well, she wrote the most wonderful answer. She had every historical 
detail, some of which I've omitted here. She had all of them down in exactly the right order. She had all the right pedantic, agnostic kind of answer. And then she put a period, and then she wrote one sentence, final paragraph, which was, but I still think it was a miracle. Let us fast forward a couple of years to the year 325. The Roman persecutions about which we've been speaking have been over for about a dozen years. On May 20th, a day of brilliant sunshine, about 300 bishops arrived at the summer residence of the Emperor Constantine, located at a little place called Nicaea, which is just on the Asiatic line of the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles, as you remember, that narrow body of water connecting the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. It's Asia on the one side and Europe on the other side. Well, this was on the Asian side, just across from the town then known as Byzantium, later to be called after Constantine, Constantinople, and today is known as Istanbul. A gauntlet of troops were drawn up and the bishops walked between that gauntlet of troops and as they did so, the soldiers snapped to attention. And what was dramatic about it and ironic in some ways and very moving in another way was that many of the bishops still bore the physical marks of the persecution limping or without an arm or without an eye those who had been tortured were now walking between many of those soldiers who had perpetrated those very cruelties it was a moment of some consequence but also a moment of some poignancy here were the representatives of the Apostolic College meeting in the palace of the emperor. This was the first ecumenical council of which we have had 21 since. The Council of Nicaea. The reason that the bishops had come together was again an irony. The persecutions had almost destroyed the Christian church from the outside. And now there had arisen a crisis that seemed about to destroy the church from the inside. And once again, I would remark that those of us who live as Catholics in these times of great controversy and division should take consolation, at least to some degree, in the fact that division and controversy have always been part of our faith and of our testament. What had happened was the rise of a particularly revolutionary new doctrine, which historians have called Arianism. Arius was a priest of the Diocese of Alexandria in Egypt. By all accounts, he was a brilliant theologian, but he was also a man as pious as he was learned. In other words, he was no hedonist. He was certainly not somebody who was seeking his own pleasure in these matters. But when he was confronted with one of the most difficult and profound of the mysteries of the Catholic faith, he was troubled by it. How, he asked himself, 
How could Jesus have been both God and man? Is there any possible way in which to explain that? Now, the Gospels, which Arius knew backward and forward, seemed to attest to this fact. But there were ambiguities as well. There were times, for example, when Jesus would say something like, this is not for me to say, this is for the Father to say. Or he would refer to himself, Jesus did, as the Son of Man. He did that very often. And out of texts like that, and there were others, Arius began to find the erosion of his belief in the divinity of Christ. He wrestled with the problem honestly, and as a trained philosopher and theologian, he tried to approach it in a way that was consistent with his own intellectual training. What he concluded was something like this, and I, in oversimplifying, I probably am not doing him adequate justice, but I think it's enough to make the basic point. Jesus of Nazareth was the most remarkable and elevated and noble thing ever created and given the most noble and elevated tasks to do. He was indeed, as St. John says at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus was the Word of God. And as John says in that same passage, it was through the Word of God that everything else was created and everything else is sustained in being. But he was not God. He was the most noble creature, the most wonderful creature, the most elevated creature. But creature he was. And again, I commit the sin of oversimplification if you used your hands to make the point, you could say that God is here, the Word of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is here, and all the rest of humanity and all the rest of creation, whether organic or inorganic, is here. Arius began to preach his views in the churches of Alexandria, just about the time the persecutions stopped. Eventually, as you could imagine, his views came to be known by the Bishop of Alexandria, a man called Alexander, who called for Arius and said to him, in effect, Arius, you are by far more learned than I am. The arguments you adduce to sustain your position in all their subtlety I can barely understand. But it is my duty to tell you that what you are proclaiming is not what has been passed on to me by my predecessors. And that tradition proclaims clearly that what you have been teaching is not what the apostles taught. And therefore, I ask you to desist. Well, Arius, I'm sure in all conscience, could not do so. And so he left Egypt. Perhaps it's even fair to say he fled Egypt and went to other parts of what we now call the Middle East where he found powerful patrons. And he continued to preach his new doctrine, his interpretation of the scriptural evidence. It would be hard to overestimate the importance of the confrontation between Alexander the bishop and Arius. 
in the 1600 years that have passed since, that confrontation or ones analogous to it have taken place over and over and over again. And I do not hesitate to say that they are taking place even as we speak. It has always been the case that tradition has been challenged, and most often by people of very good will. It is not a question of bad will, but still the challenge is there. And for the authoritative structure, the College of Bishops, the answer has to be based upon, if you'll pardon this strange syntax, the answer has to be based on a rhetorical question. Is what you are saying in accord with what the apostles passed on to us? Well, in his travels, as I said, Arius found support, and support among some powerful people. And he was also a very gifted literary man. Not only was he a, a deep thinker, but he was also an expert pamphleteer. And it is said that sailors, who are not necessarily known for their piety, when they were uh, on their ships, or stevedores unloading the ships at the ports of Haifa and Aleppo and the other ports in the Eastern Mediterranean, would be singing hymns that Arius had written. And his view seemed so reasonable to many people that it spread and spread and became the occasion for this great crisis. Enter Constantine. The emperor, who now, after the civil wars and the defeat of the other warlords, was now in control of everything else in the Roman Empire, was not about to lose control of the church which he had joined. Or rather, he was not about to let that church disintegrate into squabbling factions. And so, the Council of Nicaea was summoned. The Pope himself did not attend. He was too far away, but he did send his delegate, and the delegate presided at the Council's sessions. Therefore, the integrity of the College of Bishops was maintained. Well, the Council condemned Arianism, as we all know, and reaffirmed the traditional doctrine about the divinity of Christ. You and I are reminded of that every uh, Sunday when we recite the Nicene Creed. And of course, the word Nicene comes from Nicaea. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. This ecumenical judgment, however, was not the end of the story. After Constantine's death in 337, he was succeeded by his sons at various points in their lives, and his sons became Arians. It is a curious thing that the offspring of the man who brought peace and toleration, and indeed state recognition to the Christian faith, that it was his offspring who now took up the cudgels in behalf of a doctrine condemned at the council summoned by their father. This intrusion, if I may put it so, is also a sign of another problem that arose in connection with the conversion of the emperors. The Arian controversy gave occasion for this, but it was a problem that was to dog the church for many, many centuries, and indeed, to some extent, still does. 
It was the rise of what historians call Caesaropapism. The emperors had become Christian, but they were not content, not Constantine, nor his sons, nor their successors, content simply to adopt a kind of supportive role. As they controlled everything else, it was necessary in their view to control the church as well. Caesaropapism. Caesar, the secular ruler, Papa or Pope, the ecclesiastical ruler, rolled into one so that the emperor is not only the head of the secular state, but he controls the ecclesiastical establishment as well. This we find particularly in the uh, careers of Constantine's sons, but it appears in all sorts of guises over all sorts of years, and in a later uh, discussion which, God willing, you and I will have, we'll see one of the most extravagant and fascinating examples of it in King Henry VIII of England. There were other troubles too which beset these early Christians at the very moment when it would seem that their harshest and hardest days were over. Arianism was practically settled after only a hundred years of more controversy at the councils of Ephesus in 431 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Between Nicaea 325 and Ephesus a hundred years later, the controversies had rolled on. After Chalcedon, gradually the Arian crisis disappeared. It was at that council of Chalcedon in 451 that the fathers proclaimed the formulary which has ever since guided Christian believers in their attitude toward the Savior. Jesus of Nazareth, said the council, is one person with two natures, one personality, two natures, a person who is both human and divine. This invocation of Greek philosophical categories was intelligible to the people at that time and is intelligible to us. The fathers of Chalcedon arrived at this decision, at this formulary, under the leadership of one of the great bishops of Rome of all time, a man we still remember as Pope Leo the Great. And it was his statement of this relationship of nature and person which was adopted by the council and which prevails into our own day. And something else important for Catholics happened as a result of Chalcedon. And that is that the fathers agreed in company with Pope Leo that Mary, the mother of Jesus, rightfully bore the title Theotokos in Greek, which means the God-bearer. That is to say, if Jesus, as defined now by Nicaea, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, if Jesus as a person is God, then Mary is the mother, not just of the human part of Jesus, but of the whole, because the human and divine natures are intermingled so closely they cannot be divided. And therefore, if she is the mother of him in nature, she is also the mother of God. And it is therefore from precisely this moment that one can see how the Marian devotion, which is so much part of historical Catholicism, had its formal beginning. 
The devotion to Notre Dame, to Our Lady, is one which sets Catholics off from many other Christians, but nevertheless, it is something which is traceable directly to the decisions of Chalcedon. But there were other troubles as well. We live in a valley of tears, and the church is like, and of course Jesus meant this too, the church is like the fellow who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and was beaten up and left for dead in the ditch. And along came, well, Constantine at first to act as a good Samaritan. But even the good Samaritan turned bad after a while. And so there were all these difficulties to deal with, even as Christians had triumphed over a pagan culture. Maybe one of the most difficult and yet, I think I can say safely, most familiar doctrinal aberrations that grew up at this same time was something called Pelagianism. I say it is something that could be very familiar to us because I am of the opinion, for what that may be worth, that we are reliving the Pelagian heresy very much in our time. Pelagius was a British monk, very eloquent fellow, and again, like Arius, no doubt, good-willed and anxious to promote the common good and not his own good. But he came up with a theory which said that human beings are, of course, subject to original sin. That is to say, the sin of Adam and Eve has left its imprint upon human beings and has restricted their powers, has limited their intellect, has weakened their will, has made us in short, imperfect, has made us prone to satisfy ourselves, to commit sins. Well, said Pelagius, I don't see the point of that. It seems to me that original sin is hardly more than a kind of bad example. Men and women are essentially good. There's nothing damaged or wrong about men and women. There's no cosmic pain that works its way through the human psyche. We are, all of us, blessed with the capacity to achieve supernatural good by simply exerting our own human will and intellect. Well, doesn't that sound a bit familiar? Do you know of anybody, let me rephrase that, do you know of any group of people in which you wouldn't find a Pelagian today who wouldn't say that well, there's nothing wrong with human beings. We're all essentially good. Sin is a word you hardly hear anymore. I conclude on that rather dismal note for a very definite reason. That the next time, God willing, that I can sit here and talk to you, I want to talk to you about the Protestant Reformation. And what the Protestant Reformation represents, among many, many other things, is a struggle against Neo-Pelagianism. If Martin Luther had a villain in the historical gallery of the Christian church, it was Pelagius. If ever there was someone who understood that the human being is far from perfect, if it wasn't Martin Luther, it was John Calvin. And so Pelagianism, like so many of these so-called ancient heresies, is by no means irrelevant for succeeding centuries or even for today. Wouldn't you say the world is also full of, of Arians, of people who are willing to say that Jesus of Nazareth was a, a noble fellow, or as the actress of my youth, Jane Russell, you 
forgive me for quoting her, Jane Russell used to say, well, Jesus is a living doll. Well, I think there's more to it than that. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.